0: Welcome to TanachStudy.com. My name is Jonathan Snowbell, and we are studying the fourth section of Parashat Korach. In the previous three sections that we studied in our parasha, we learned about three violent events that put an end to Korach and his Eidaz rebellion. We'll recount them in the order described in the Torah. Datan and Aviram, and perhaps Korach, and their families were miraculously swallowed by the earth. The 250 leaders, and perhaps Korah, were consumed by a divine fire when they offered Ketoret. The next day, B'nai Yisrael expressed their displeasure with the results of the rebellion, and as we explained specifically with the deaths of the 250 leaders, with the cry, Atem Hamitemit Am Hashem, You are the ones who have caused the death of Hashem's people. And this was met with a plague that, as far as numbers killed, dwarfed the previous two events by killing 14,700 people, which had the potential of reaching even higher numbers had Aharon not acted so quickly. In the first two events, which apparently happened more or less simultaneously, if they were not enough to quiet the voices of dissent, the third event, which expressed God's displeasure with the rebellion and showed the Torah's ability to save and atone would hopefully put it all to rest. However, this was not God's thinking. These were not sufficient to end the rebellion, the complaints and murmuring. More was needed according to God, as we will read in the upcoming verses. We are now in chapter 17 verse 16. Bayda'r Adonai el Moshe lemor דבר אל בני ישראל, וכך מאיתם מטה לביתיו, מאית כל נשיאיהם לבית אבותם, שנים עשר מטות, איש את תכתוב על מטהו, ואת שם אהרון תכתוב על מטה לוי, כי מטה אחד לראש בית אבותם, וינחתם באו מועד, לפני העידות אשר יוועד לכם שמה, והיה האיש יפרח, Then Hashem spoke to Moshe, saying, Speak to the sons of Israel, and get from them a rod for each father's household, twelve rods from all their leaders, according to their father's households. You shall write each name on his rod. And write Aharon's name on the rod of Levi, for there is one rod for the head of each of their father's households. You shall then deposit them in the tent of meeting in front of the testimony where I where I meet with you. It will come about that the rod of the man who I'm, whom I chose will sprout. Thus I will lessen from upon myself the grumblings of the sons of Israel who are grumbling against you. So we read that each tribe will submit a rod upon which the name of the Nasi or prince of that tribe will be written. In total 12 tribes. The tribe of Levi will also submit a rod with Aharon Hakohen's name on it. Is the Levite's rod included in the twelve rods, or are there twelve rods, and in addition, the rod of the Shevet of Levi? Throughout Sefer Bamidbar, the twelve tribes constantly exclude the tribe of Levi. The twelve princes, the twelve tribes in the census, the twelve tribes in the arrangement in the camps, and the twelve spies. The tribe of Yosef is always split into two, Menashe and Ephraim, bringing the number back to 12. Although verse 17 alludes to 12 rods, implying that the tribe of Levi is not included, only after, mentioning the, of, after the mentioning of the 12 rods in verse 17 is a rod from the tribe of Levi mentioned in verse 18. On the flip side, B'nai Israel is always 12 tribes. When Levi is excluded, Yosef takes two tribes, as we mentioned, and when Levi is included, Yosef should be considered one tribe in order to return to this predetermined number of 12 tribes. This position is the explicit claim of the Ramban and seems to be explicit in verse 21, which we'll read shortly. Why is this sign necessary? As we discussed, where the three miraculous violent end-to-the-end to the various rebel groups with many casualties to make B'nei Israel believe? As Moshe said in the previous chapter in verse 28, With this you will know that God sent me to do all these actions and it was not made up for my heart. And you will know that those people have angered God. Is this not proof enough yet? The Rashbam claims that, yes, indeed, the consuming by-fire of the 250 leaders who offered Ketoret was not viewed as a successful proof, Atem Hamitem et Am Their deaths are Moshe and Aaron's fault for telling them to offer Ketoret, the dangerous offering, so no proof yet exists as to Aaron's choice as Kohen. Perhaps Moshe's leadership is vindicated as a result of the earth swallowing Datan and Aviram, but not Aharon's Kihuna. This claim relates to a discussion earlier. Was the confrontation with Keturit Moshe's initiation? And was it too soon initiated before dipl- diplomacy was fully utilized? Or was the Keturit confrontation God's initiative? The fact that the sign did not work and a different sign was necessary pushes us to wonder if the Katorit confrontation was an unnecessary stage that could have been handled differently, as opposed to the swallowing of the earth that God mandated and proved that Moshe's leadership was from God. The Chizkuni, in contrast to the Rashbam, claims that the 250 leaders being consumed by fire did provide substantial proof. It proved that Aharon was the chosen one for being Kohen Gadol. However, it proved nothing regarding the choice of the tribe of Levi that was also part of this rebellion. For this, the sign of the blossoming rod was coming to prove. This is the Ramban's position as well. By extension, in contrast, thus the Rashbams claim that the choice is not a tribal choice but a personal choice of Aharon as the Kohen, and thus Aharon's name appears on the rod. According to the Chizkuni, if the blossoming rod is supposed to choose the tribe and not Aharon, why does Aharon and the other leaders' names appear on the rod? Verse 18 seems to justify why Aharon is written on the rod of Levi. Rashi and Ibn Ezra comment similarly. Despite the fact that they are separated in two very different factions and families, Kohanim and Leviim, ultimately they are considered one tribe. Recall our discussion in Parshat B'midbar regarding the choice of Aharon as the family of Kehunah. We asked... Is Aharon the choice person out of the choice tribe of Levi? Or is the choice of Aharon as Kohen Gadol independent of the Leviim, and perhaps even predate the choice of the Leviim? The more we view Aharon as the choice of the tribe of Levi, the easier it is to understand this section. If the blossoming rod is affirming Aharon's status as Kohen Gadol, as the Rashbam claimed, then Aharon is mentioned on the rod. If it is affirming the choice of the tribe of Levi as Chizkuni claimed, then the tribe of Levi was chosen with Aharon as the equivalent leader of the tribe. If both are being affirmed, both Aharon and the tribe of Levi are represented in the rod as one organic entity. In any case, what we need to pay close attention to is who is being chosen. Is it the tribe? Is it the Kohen? Is it both? We continue now with verse 21. Vaidaber Mosheel bnei Israel, vayitnu elav kol nasiyehem matel nasiyehad matel nasiyehad levet avotam shenem asar matot u Mate Aharon betoch matotam. Moshe therefore spoke to the sons of Israel, and all their leaders gave him a rod apiece for each leader according to their father's households, twelve rods with the rod of Aharon among their rods. As previously mentioned, this verse implies that Aharon's rod was one of the 12 rods and not a 13th one. The significance of the statement of the Leviim being one of the 12 tribes and not an extra 13th tribe is of great significance. The Leviim are different. They do not serve in the army. They are counted separately in the census. They work in the Mishkan. They travel in a separate part of the camp. At the end of our parasha, we will learn that they will not receive a portion of inheritance in Eretz Israel or at least not a regular one. It is easy to view them as, an extrani- as extraneous to the nation and not part of the nation. Their placement as one of the 12 tribes in this section reaffirms their belonging to the nation. The relationship between the tribe of Levi and the nation will receive more attention and more clarification in the halachic section at the end of our parasha. Verse 22 so moshe deposited the rods before hashem in the tent of the testimony Now on the next day, Moshe went into the the tent of the testimony and behold, the rod of Aharon for the house of Levi had sprouted and put forth buds and produced blossoms and it bore ripe almonds. Moshe then brought out all of the rods from the presence of Hashem to all the sons of Israel and they looked and each man took his rod. Rashi explains the three stages of the miracle of the blossoming of the rod, a flower blossom, the initial blossoming of the fruit when the flower falls, and finally the actual fruit, the almonds. Every child growing up in Israel knows that the fastest fruit to blossom is the almond tree, as the famous Tubi Shvat song testifies to. So too God's judgment will be fast against those who challenge the Kehuna. This implies that Rashi, like the Rashbam, believes that the sign justifies Aharon's role as the Kohen Gadol and not the tribe of Levi. But we have to ask a question. What is the significance of this sign as a sign? All the other signs were public and confirmable. Public deaths in plain view of the nation. Here Moshe takes the rods and places them overnight in the Mishkan. And the next day Moshe presents Aharon's staff as the one that had blossomed. Is this plausibly convincing? Is this plausibly convincing for a nation that is questioning Moshe's authenticity as a leader, as God's representative despite all... That has happened. Now a sign is done behind closed door, out of the view of the people, is going to convince them of the choice of a haron and or of the Levim. Would you believe a magic trick if the magician went into the side room and came back with a rabbit and said he took it out of his hat? The Rashbam, in a close and precise read of verse 23, claims that the three-part sign, blossoming, early signs of fruit and almonds, did not happen at once. Moshe did not walk out with a staff with almonds. Rather, as the verse describes, the staff merely blossomed. Subsequently, after taking out the blossom staff, the blossom showed the first fruit and ultimately the almonds, but these two final stages, according to the Rashbam, took place in front of the nation. This might be further justified in the word Vayiru in verse 24. They saw it. They saw the process and not just the final product. If the Rashbam's analysis is correct and a sign has to be public in order to prove anything, why then does the initial stage of the sign take place behind closed doors? I will suggest two answers. One is an educational one towards the nation. Not all decisions of the leadership have to happen in consultation and in front of the nation. The leaders of this nation have proven their worth, their authenticity, and their connection with God. So God determined that he wants the nation to receive a sign, but part of the message is that not everything is done and discussed in consultation with the nation, but rather behind closed doors. The second is an educational one towards Moshe. If the Ramban at the beginning of the parasha is correct... Moshe, as opposed to God, chose a path of public confrontation to prove that Aharon is the Kohen. If the Rashbam that we mentioned earlier in today's section is correct, the confrontation failed to be an effective sign. God then is telling Moshe that not always is the public confrontation the effective tool to make a point. Sometimes more quiet and behind doors maneuvers can get the same or even better results. This idea brings to mind the failure of the first set of tablets that were given in great public ceremony, but were ultimately broken by Moshe at the sin of the golden calf, as opposed to the second set of tablets where the Torah says, you do this between you and yourself, that were given privately between God and Moshe and were not broken. Verse 25. And Hashem said to Moshe, Put back the rod of Aharon before the testimony to be kept as a sign against the rebels, that you may put an end to their grumblings against me so that they will not die. Thus Moshe did, just as Hashem had commanded him, so he did. The rods of the 11 other tribes are returned to their respective tribes, but Aharon's rod remains behind next to the Aaron Habrit as a permanent sign and reminder to those who would be rebellious of God's choice of Aharon as Kohen Gadot. Not only will it remind them, it will save them from death. The rod is placed next to the Aron HaBrit, the Ark of Testimony, reminding us of the previous incident in the Torah in which an object was placed next to the Aron as a permanent reminder. The man at the end of Parshat Beshalach and Shmot is similarly placed into a tzin tzenet, some sort of container, and placed next to the Aron HaBrit. It is however possible that while this incident is recorded in Bemidbar, the incident of the rod. That it actually took place earlier than the incident in Bishalach. The placing of the man next to the Aron certainly did not take place at the chronological juncture of the end of Parashat Bishalach, because at the end of Parashat Bishalach, the Mishkan was not yet built. If there's no Mishkan, there is no Aron, and there's no man to place next to the Aron. That being the case, the placing of the man next to the Aaron might have taken place at the end of the forty years in the wilderness, when they were permanently departing from the man, and it was necessary to eternalize it. In fact, the Torah at the end of Parshat Bishalach states that the Bnei Israel ate the man for forty years, foreshadowing what we've learned in Sefer Bamidbar that Bnei Israel will be in the desert for forty years. It is very likely that. At the end of the 40-year period, the man was placed next to the Aaron. And immediately after Korach's rebellion in the second year, the rod of Aaron, the flowered rod of Aaron, was placed next to the Aaron. 38 years pre, pre, prior to the placing of the man. Verse 27. Vayomru b'nei Israel el-Moshe Hein gavanu avadnu kulanu <laughs> avadnu. Then the sons of Israel spoke to Moshe saying, Behold, we perish. We are dying. We are all dying. Everyone who comes near, who comes near to the Mishkan of Hashem must die. Are we to perish completely? Two directions exist as how to read the final two verses in this chapter. A more limited approach views B'nei Yisrael's lamenting words as addressing a very specific and limited problem. The aftermath of the finality of the choice of the Kohanim and the Levi'im in the sign of the blossoming rod leaves B'nei on the outside of the worshipping in the Mishkan. If they try to approach, they will die, as transpired with the 250 leaders who offered Katorat. According to some of the commentators, Rashi and Rashbam and others this stems from a lack of clarity regarding what the nation might partake in and what not this the Torah will openly address in the next chapter in verse 4 vizar lo ikrav alechem a foreigner is not allowed to come forward to serve however another possible approach views these sentiments of the nation not as limited not as a limited response to the choosing of the kohanim and Levim, but rather as a response in general to the failure of the last several parshiot, Rasag, Rabbeinu Sa'ad Yagaon, comments, Hinei mimenu metu, kalu, kulanu avudim. Some of us have died, some of us have been completely wiped out, and if that's the case, we are all lost. Various Midrashim, in fact, expand on this point by describing death plaguing this generation, the sin of the golden calf, Eira, and the various deaths of this rebellion. In order to get context on this point, we have to make a very important no- note. These words uttered by Ben Israel are the final words of the generation that left Egypt that is doomed to die in the wilderness. The end of Parashat Korach, which we will soon learn, is a a Halachic parasha that does not continue the sequence of events of this generation. It is a Halachic aside or Halachic parenthetical chapter. The beginning of Parashat Chukat is a Halachic section discussing the Red Heifer and the laws of Tum'ah stemming from death. Chapter 20, we return to the narrative of Sefer Bemidbar. However, the classic read of Chapter 20 is that it's quantum leaped 38 years into the future with a whole new generation after the death of the generation that left Mitzrayim from 20 years and older. In Sefer Bemidbar, we've learned about the deaths at Havera in Parshat Baalotcha, the deaths at Kivrota Te'ava, also at, in Parshat Balotra, in the aftermath of asking for meat. We learned about the deaths of the of the deaths of the Ma'apilim who tried to enter Eretz Israel, The deaths of the various factions of Korach's rebellion, and the plague of fourteen thousand seven hundred deaths in the aftermath of this rebellion, and ultimately and most acutely is a death sentence hanging over the heads of this generation as a result of the sin of the spies. They reek of death. They tried to fight this death sentence by attempting to do tshuva and going to Eretz Yisrael, and that failed. That was the sin of the Ma'apilim. They tried to fight the system that decided to keep them out of Eretz Yisrael by rebelling against Moshe. This was... Specifically, Datan and Aviram's rebellion. Af eretz You have not taken us. You are not taking us to the land flowing with milk and honey. That rebellion failed too. So now there is nothing to do but lament this death sentence. While the end of Parashat Korach concludes with the laws pertaining to the Kohanim and the Levim, as we will discuss. And as makes sense, considering the discussion regarding the Kohanim and the Levi'im that have taken place in this parasha, the parasha of the Red Heifer at the beginning of next week's parasha of Chukat is ultimately the reaction to this point. The generation that left Egypt, that is doomed to die in the desert, is lamenting their death of their generation. The coming to terms with the death sentence elicits a discussion of the laws of impurity from death parashat para a subtle but tangible way to say that this generation ceases to exist and with that we conclude chapter 17 and the narrative of parashat korach from this point till the end of the parasha we will sink our teeth into chapter 18 and the laws of koanim and levim this will be a far more technical section and a far more halachic section. As we've already mentioned, according to some of the commentators, some of these laws directly address the concerns of the nation in the final verses of chapter 17. The cholzar lo aleichem, foreigners are not allowed to participate in the work in the mishkan, non-koanim, non-leviyim. But in general, the institutions of kehuna and leviyah have been at the forefront and this halachic discussion is a fitting place to conclude this discussion and further understand the ramifications and obligations of being God's chosen tribe. While Korach sought it out and the 250 leaders alongside him, we will learn that the life of the Kohen and Levi is not a simple one and perhaps not even an envious one. And with that, we conclude the fourth section of our, of Parashat Korach.